Well, before we begin this morning, um, I don't know if anybody else has told you this or not, but I received a text message this morning from um, Reagan Schlegel. I don't know how many of you know the Schlegel family, but the whole family worships with us here. Fabulous, fabulous people. And uh, they have just been given a new gift from the Lord. Uh, Reagan and Dana um, uh, were given a new daughter this morning. They named her Lillian. She's a couple of weeks early, but Dana was not complaining about that at all uh, because the baby is healthy. Seven pounds, 19 ounces, and arrived at 8.30 this morning. And so we congratulate um, Reagan and Dana upon that new gift that was given to them and also to the grandparents, um, uh, David and, and, and Claudia, and, and then the aunt and uncle, Sarah, and, and uh, John, and, and just their whole family, just a wonderful one. And the great-grandmother, Sue, uh, is, um, is a part of our fellowship here as well. So congratulations to the Schlegel family. Well, with that said, let's get into the study of God's word because that's part of the way that we worship him is not only rightly handling his truth, but then responding to it in obedience. So how are we going to obey if we do not know what it says? So let's stand out of respect for our Lord as we read together 1 Timothy, the first chapter. We'll pick up where we left off last week with verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for not only the instruction of your word, but for its power. And may we not only clearly hear what you say, but respond. Respond out of love and out of respect through our obedience to the glory of your holy name. For it is in Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, after being falsely accused of taking Greeks into the area of the temple reserved for Jews, as you well know by now, the Romans arrested Paul in 57 AD. They, they arrested him to, to initially keep him from being beaten to death by the Jews. But if you read in Acts 21 through 27, you'll find that he's held in custody for violating the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. His preaching is causing disruptions. And they put him in prison for four years. Two of those years, they have moved him now to Rome where they're holding him in a house arrest where he can welcome family and friends. That's Acts 28. So while he's under house arrest, he continues to mentor a young man by the name of Timothy. At the same time that he is writing letters to the Ephesian church, which you have in your Bible as the book of Ephesians. He writes to the Colossian church, which you have in your Bible as the book of Colossians. He writes to his friend Philemon. He writes to the Philippian church. And so as he's writing these letters while he's under house arrest, he's also mentoring Timothy. When he gets released from prison in 62 AD, he begins to visit churches that he started. 
When he gets back to Ephesus, there are lots of problems. Because, as we saw in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, there are those in that church. And this is the, those who desire to be teachers of the law is the, kind of the term for the elders there who were to oversee the spiritual growth of the younger Christians. And instead of teaching from the Gospels, which they could have done, that's what those guys should have been doing because they've had the Gospel of Mark in circulation now for seven years. Mark wrote about the Gospel to the Romans in 55 AD. They had the Gospel of Luke in their possession. Copies of this had been made and had been circulated throughout that area. And they had the, 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 the gospel according to Luke that was written to the Greeks in 59 AD. They had a lot of the general epistles that were in circulation at that time. They were among the churches. You had the epistle from James, the oldest of the epistles, written in 41 AD. You had the, the letter that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia in Galatians uh, um, 49 AD. Uh, you had the book of Romans written back in 57 A.D. So that's what they should have been studying. And they could have been studying from the letter that Paul actually wrote to them, the letter to the Ephesians in 61 A.D. And instead of doing that, instead of doing that, these guys were delving into, verse 4, myths and endless genealogies. A professor of hermeneutics you remember the etymology of the word hermeneutics? comes from Hermes. Hermes was the messenger of the gods in Greek mythology. Uh, you'll remember back um, in Acts 14 in Lystra, which was Timothy's hometown, uh, they were calling Paul Hermes because his proclaiming of the gospel from the Lord was confirmed when he was healing people. He healed a man crippled from birth just like Christ had done. And so they began to call him Hermes. And so hermeneutics became the word that uh, represented those who exercised the art and the science of biblical interpretation. That, that when done correctly, you rightly handle the message of the Lord, the theonoustos, the God-breathed, word of the Lord. Well, this professor of hermeneutics taught in his classrooms that any verse of the Bible can mean one thing to him while it means something totally different to you. In other words, regardless, regardless of the truth of what the Lord actually says in his word, regardless of that, this guy assumes the role of God making scripture say whatever he thinks it ought to say. He made himself the arbiter of truth based on what he thinks. Folks, that's the soil in which heresy grows. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why and how some churches can embrace immoral agendas that are clearly contrary to scripture? How can they do that? How can they walk out there with such impressive robes and stand behind large Bibles with candles all about them and then just clearly contradict the scripture with great confidence? You know, the reverend so-and-so, he's pro-abortion. 
the reverend so-and-so has rainbow flags outside his church. The reverend so-and-so is a female pastor who's married to a woman. How can they do that? How can they do that in the clear teaching of God's word that correlates with his holy character? Well, this is how they do it. Instead of rightly handling scripture, instead of coming under the authority of God's word, this professor has made himself the adjudicator of truth. And he's going to determine what God's word ought to mean. And that's why you've got a number of reverend so-and-sos out there. They've been taught, they've been trained in the art of what's called eisegesis. Eisegesis means to lead into. In other words, the way you do that is you, you, you cherry pick a scripture and then by your own authority, you remove verses from their context and you make them say whatever kind of fits whatever your opinion happens to be that day. We see this happening in our court systems. How they handle the U.S. Constitution. I mean, there are those who believe that the principles that are set forth by the Constitution mean whatever they say they mean as a judge, as a court. Others who are known as originalists say, no, 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 no. The Constitution should be interpreted and applied as it was originally written. Otherwise, if you don't do that, we, the people, are in danger of losing the freedoms the Constitution actually provides. Same is true in the church. If God's word is at the mercy of whatever the latest theologian thinks, whatever the latest professor is saying in his classroom, whatever the latest preacher is proclaiming from his pulpit, then we the people, as the body of Christ, we're in danger of losing the truth the Lord has given to us. So the opposite of eisegesis is exegesis. Ex, ex, to lead out of. Like the book of Exodus, they were being led out of Egypt. So when you read your Bible and you're interested in, in doing exegesis, you take into consideration the grammar you, you look at the syntax, how, how words are used, what were their original meanings, how would they have been understood in that day, how, what was the context, and then what was the historical setting. And you, you take all of that truth out of the text that the Lord wrote into the text. Does that make sense? It's what Paul encouraged Timothy to do in the next letter that he writes to him in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, you present yourself to the Lord as one approved. Someone the Lord will approve of. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, but you correctly handle the word of truth. And that's why some of you drive 30, 45, 60, some of you drive up to 90 minutes to come here and worship. And it's not to listen to me. I can assure you, there are lots of better speakers between where you live and where we worship than I am. So you're not coming because of me. The reason you're making that drive 
is because you are looking for what's called expository teaching. You're not wanting somebody's opinion. You're not wanting somebody to get up and speculate and, and give you what they think about Scripture. You want to come where the truth of Scripture is exposed. Where, you, where you, you don't have it twisted into the opinions of men. Let me tell you about that professor, by the way, just to finish my story. The professor of hermeneutics. You know what he did? The one who made himself the adjudicator of truth. He ends up leaving that seminary right before he leaves his wife and his son for another woman whom he will also leave a few years later for another woman. And he is able to justify it because the Bible means whatever he says that it means. And because of his educational degrees, he is enabled to continue as a hermeneutical professor. When Hymenaeus and Alexander made a shipwreck of their faith, doing that kind of stuff, Paul threw them out of the church. He threw them out of the church. And he writes in chapter 4, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Man, they distorted the truth in many ways. Now we saw last week, look down at verse 6, by swerving from these, what are the these? These are what he was talking about, verse 5, the pure heart, the good conscience, and the sincere faith. They wandered away into vain discussion with no idea what they were talking about. Verse 7, yet they made confident assertions. Now, later, Paul is going to identify what their motive was. You know what it was? Surely you do. You can, even if you haven't read it, you can, uh, you can probably guess what it was. What was it? Their motive was filthy lucre. Filthy lucre. They were doing what they were doing because it was profitable to them. It was profitable. Their message was defiled. Paul calls it the doctrine of demons. Their hearts were impure, their conscience was seared, and their faith was insincere. Yet they desired to be exalted as teachers of the law, professors. Now this is going to sound harsh to some of you. And the reason it sounds harsh is because we live in a relativistic age where being politically correct is very important to our culture. And the only thing that you can proclaim is wrong are those who still believe that there is a right and a wrong. That's the only thing that's wrong. So no matter how loving you might speak the truth, they're going to say that your speech is hateful. You know why? Why is that? Because to a fallen man, you have no right, in, in their mind, you have no right to tell them that what they believe and how they live immorally and what their opinions are, are wrong. You can't do that. It's merely their opinion versus your opinion. And since it's their life, since it's their culture, since it's their relationships, they believe that you have no right to impose your biblical opinion on them. And I bring that up because do you see now why liberalism is so ineffective? 
When you have just one man's opinion against another man's opinion, how are you going to determine who is right? So we need to understand the gospel doesn't involve men's opinions. It doesn't. The gospel is an objective fact. It's a fact that the Lord provides in his word through 40 different individuals so that no one can say, well, that's just the word of Muhammad when he was held up in a cave for several years. No one can say, well, that's just the opinion of Joseph Smith when he was running around in his backyard looking for, for treasure that his dad told him was buried out there. No. This is what the Lord said through a variety of individuals spanning hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He gives you pictures and prophecies and promises confirmed by Old Testament genealogies and New Testament eyewitnesses and modern day archeology, span all confirming how the word of the Lord is 100% reliable and accurate. The gospel is not something man could produce even if he wanted to do so. He couldn't do it. Because man can't control, nor can he orchestrate history that spans numerous centuries. Culminating in only one, one individual who has the ability to restore sight to blind men. Strength to the legs of lame men. Restore the sanity that men have lost due to their possession of demons who can command wind and waves and have them obey, who can create food on the spot, who can raise dead men to life, who can say from a cross to tell us die, and at that very moment rip a 10-inch thick curtain 60 feet high from top to bottom at a temple that is nearby. Only one could do that. And then return from the grave three days later and teach and eat and give instructions while passing through walls before ascending into heaven and then sending the Holy Spirit to enable men who lack rabbinical training to proclaim a message that every man will now hear in his own language and cause cowards who once hid behind locked doors to go boldly forth to proclaim a message that will be hated by men and hated by governments and yet they will continue to boldly proclaim it because they will die for it as they look forward to re being reunited with the Savior with whom they saw with their own eyes come forth from the dead and ascend into the heavens. That divinely given message is superior to any, any opinion that fallen men can develop. Paul says they replaced this marvelous message that the Lord uses to bring about the redemption of man with myths, with myths, having no idea what they're talking about. I've put two of them out of the church. And the rest of them need to go too, Paul says. Because what man thinks from his fallen perspective will shipwreck the faith of anybody who listens to them. Now having said, verse 7, their desire was to be teachers of the law, to be in positions of leadership that they believe results in the church looking up to them for instruction. He makes sure that Timothy and the church don't miss the point of the law. So he says, let me just remind you here. If these guys, desiring to be teachers of the law, were actually Christian, here's what they would have said. Here's what they should have said. 
They should have told you, listen, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good as long as you use it lawfully. <laughs> you could say that about preaching. Preaching is good as long as you are rightly handling God's word. If someone is entertaining you with what they think, they prostitute the very purpose the Lord gave us for preaching. Well, the Lord gave the law that reflects his holy will for his creation, which is good, provided that it's used lawfully. Now, when they use the law to exert authority over the church, when they use the law to lead people's faith astray, they're really no different than the Pharisees were within Judaism. It is not the purpose of the law to elevate the authority of men. It's not the purpose of the law to give hermeneutical professors the right to impress the church with how much they know because of what they think and how much they can quote or how many degrees they have earned. Do you see the word here for law, nomos? And look at the word at the end there that means properly. Nemimos. It's a play on word in Greek, which is why the ESV translates it lawfully. <laughs> Seems a bit strange, I think, in English, because of, of course the law should be used lawfully. I mean, how else would you use it? But his point is this, to be teachers of the law approved by the Lord as a workman that does not need to be ashamed, you need to handle his word, the nomos, nemimos, properly. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, what he's saying here is, look, of course the law was not given to make anybody righteous because no one's going to justify themselves before the Lord by keeping the law. The, the, the law is still good, though. It's a reflection of God's holiness. And it was given for a good purpose. It was given to restrain evil. And also to enable man who has broken God's law to see he has a need for a savior. That's what leads us to the gospel, which takes us to verses 12 through 17. This point is, is made extremely clear in Romans 3, verse 20. No one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, but through the law we become conscious of our sins. So there's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with it. The law is good because it comes from a holy God. The problem, the problem when it comes to the law is us. Us. Which is why the law is needed for two purposes. To restrain our wickedness and to reveal the truth to us that we are in need of someone to reconcile us with our creator. Now, how is that going to happen? If the teachers, if those who desire to be teachers of the law, the elders in the church, spend their time speculating about myths and creating heroes from the past as listed in genealogies while they're ignoring and distorting the truth that they ought to be teaching. 
You know, later he will tell you these guys weave together these imaginary stories telling you that, that, that here is how you're going to become more spiritual. Really? How is that? Well, if you don't marry, you'll become more spiritual. If you don't eat certain foods, you'll become more spiritual. And Paul says in chapter 4, said this is just pure silliness. It's nonsense. We were on vacation in Florida one time and uh, got up and went to church as we always do. And, and I, I thought it was a pretty decent church. At least their website indicated that they, that they were. I mean, a lot of people went there. They weren't too far from where we were staying. And so we drove down there and, and we went in. There were lots of cars in the parking lot. And the place was fairly full. And the music seemed, I thought, pretty good. Uh, and then the guy got up to speak. And he began telling about how he took his family to a Red Sox ball game. And uh, I thought, well, that must be the opening illustration that leads to something. And it led to just one funny story after another. Didn't seem to have any connection to any point in scripture whatsoever. And one of my daughters, they were all sitting there with me. One of my daughters leaned over and said, Dad, we got to go. We got to leave. This is not worship. Let's go back to the room and you teach us. Now, they're all whispering, and there are people right there in front of us. Shh, quiet. Dad, we can't stay here. Let's go back to the room. This is nonsense. It's nonsense. That's Paul's point. What these guys were teaching is not leading people into the worship of the Lord. What these guys are teaching, how they are using the law to make them think that they can become more acceptable to the Lord through acts of asceticism is absolutely a lie. And then as he addresses the purpose for the law, it seems to kind of echo the Ten Commandments. Did you see that? I mean, that's the impression that I got from it. When you're talking about the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners and unholy and profaners and so forth, uh, I mean, those are, those are all descriptions of people who worship man-made gods with, with idols like the Ephesians were doing Artemis at the temple of Diana. Diana is the uh, Latin word for Artemis. Artemis is the Greek. The, the temple of Diana was right there in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world. And these Ephesians, they were lawless. They were disobedient, ungodly sinners and unholy who profaned the Lord's name. I mean, they, they broke every one of the first four commandments routinely. The first four commandments have to do vertically between us and the Lord. And that's described right here. And then Paul gets real specific as he walks them through the next six commandments that are horizontal. The Lord has given his word and then he has given the means by which that word is to be passed on. He said, here is how you worship me. Here is how you are to honor me. First four commandments. Now, to transition from, horizontal to, from, from vertical to horizontal, I want the parents to teach their children my word. And what these people were doing is they were striking their mother and father. That was a term for how they were, were being disrespectful to them, dishonoring them, refusing to listen to them. 
treating them with contempt. Violated the fifth commandment. The law has to do with murderers. That's the sixth commandment. Thou shalt do no murder. The word here is androphonos, from which we get homicide. It's not a uh, not the word for manslaughter and accidental death, but it is for those who deliberately, deliberately take a life the Lord has given. The Lord gives life. Thou shalt do no murder. And it's also for those who live sexually immoral. And he specifically calls out men who practice homosexuality. This is the word um, arso coites. Arsenal coites. Arsenal coites. Two Greek words, male and marriage bed. He puts them together. Violates the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is anything outside of one man and one woman becoming one flesh till death do them part. That is an act of rebellion. And he says, enslavers. Commandment number eight has to do with thou shalt not steal. Not only property, but children and adults. Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24, both set forth specific penalties for stealing people and enslaving them. Those who do that need to hear God's word. They need it. As do liars, the ninth commandment, don't bear false witness. And perjurers, those who will lie because of what they covet. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The word sound here, hygieno, is our word for hygiene. It's our word for healthy, wholesome. The law is good news. Because it comes from a holy God. But it's bad news. For those who are disobedient, who are ungodly, who are sinners, who are unholy, who are profane. Because it's the basis by which they are going to be judged. And if you don't tell them that, they will never realize they have a need for a savior. So if you are going to entertain spiritually dead people who are headed to judgment, you're going to tell them about myths and you're going to tell them jokes. You're going to tell them stories that encourage them to do good but never tell them the truth about loving, how loving our Lord is who is holy. What are you doing to them? You're condemning them. You're condemning them. You want to talk about hate speech. So don't miss Paul's point about the law. It is good if you use it properly to restrain evil and to reveal our need as sinners for the gospel. But the law can't save anyone. It can't save anyone. It's used to judge everyone. Everyone who is lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy and profane. And whatever else is contrary to what is healthy and wholesome for those created in the image of God. So unless you are telling people the truth in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Unless you are doing that, you are not loving. You're not. 
Now, do you know of a better message that I could preach on Sunday than this? If I told you to be more tolerant of the immorality that's being embraced by our culture, just so that you're not offensive, that you should be more accepting of those lifestyles so that you don't end up condemning anybody within your family, anybody that are your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Would that be more loving? Knowing that the Lord is going to hold them accountable? You know, when you ask people, what do you think happens when you die? You know how they often respond? I don't care who they are. They often respond, you know, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. And so my question is this, how do you know there's a heaven or hell? How do you know? Well, the Bible says so. Oh, okay. Who gave us the Bible? Who gave us the Bible? Who gave you life, by the way? Who sustains your life on a daily basis? Who suspends this this earth in space and keeps it in orbit at just the right distance around the sun? Tilted at just the right degree to provide seasons that we might have crops. That rotates at just the right speed that you can set your watch by. Who's doing that? Who maintains the magnetic field protecting the earth from solar winds and limiting the ultraviolet light from the sun? Who does that? To whom are you going to be accountable at death? Have you ever thought about that? Where are you going when you die? You know what they usually say? I don't care whether they haven't darkened the doors of a church in months. They will say, well, I'm going to heaven. Why? It's obvious I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Says who? What do you mean says who? I'm telling you, I'm a good person. Do you know my neighbor? You know what he's like? I don't care what your neighbor's like. It doesn't matter to me what your neighbor is like. You are not going to have to answer to your neighbor when you die. He is not going to sit in judgment of you. If there is a God, and judging by the existence of the universe, there is, remove the creator from creation, and how do you explain the existence of matter? And furthermore, how do you get life to come forth from matter? You don't know, do you? That's why you have to keep running programs about ancient aliens. There's got to be some reason out there somewhere, in some galaxy, someplace. How do you explain order coming from chaos? That makes no sense. How do you explain natural law coming from randomness? That makes no sense. And I'll tell you another thing. There is no way you can explain the intellectual properties of DNA in the absence of an intelligent creator who designs it. So if there is a God whose invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that all men are without excuse, that's Romans 1, he obviously is holy, is he not? He said, well, how do you know that? Because if there were any chink in his character, he would not be eternal. And if he's not eternal, he cannot create you. And you are real, aren't you? Are you? Are you real? Or are you just a figment of some bug's imagination? And if so, where did the bug come from? Are you real? 
most of them say yes. So on what basis do you propose to approach this eternally holy God? What is your plan? Do you see the problem? Men are drowning in their sin and they don't even know it unless somebody who cares enough about their soul will open the Bible that reveals the basis of his holiness in the law that they might understand, man, I am a lawbreaker who is in need of saving. Because if holiness demands justice, and it does, he has no choice but to deal with me justly. So my question to you is, what are you going to do? And they most of the time say, I don't know. I don't know. The good news, which is what the gospel is, is the Lord knew exactly what needed to be done. And so as Paul wrote to this church there in Ephesus just a year earlier, just a year before he writes this letter to Timothy, he said before the foundation of the world, he, talking about the Lord, he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his holy will to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the reason that we come together to worship him. We don't come together for him to worship us. That's the reason we have Christmas. He had to come fully divine to satisfy the just wrath of a holy God because we can't do it. We're not divine. And he had to come fully human to die as an atonement for our sin because we are sinners who are dead in our sin. Dead in our sin. And then he came forth from the grave three days later proving Sin, Satan, and death has been defeated so that those who are covered, that's what Kapoor means, Yom Kapoor, day of atonement, day of covering. Those who are covered by his blood, born again, new creations by his grace through faith can stand in God's holy presence rejoicing in his glory. And Paul says, that's what I've been entrusted to tell you. So don't be listening to these guys who are peddling nonsense, these myths that will cause you to wander away into vain discussion. Don't miss the point of the law. The law is good. It is a reflection of God's holiness. It is good because it restrains our wickedness. It is good because it reveals our sinfulness that we might see a need for a Savior. Man, that is the gospel that brings glory to our Lord. So thank you, Fanny Crosby, for writing 8,000 hymns and among them to God be the glory, great things he hath done so that we can stand and sing that on Sunday mornings. I didn't have this as a part of the message this morning, but I'm going to share it with you anyway before we pray. There's a young man out there and I don't know him, so I can't vouch for his life, but his name is Brock Purdy. I uh, understand that he is Mr. Irrelevant. You know what that is? Anybody know what Mr. Irrelevant is? That's the last person taken in the NFL draft. It's irrelevant. This kid is never going to ever make it in the NFL. And so they took him as the very last pick. They made him the third string quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. And uh, when the first string guy went down and the second string guy went down, they called on this 23-year-old kid out of Iowa State. 
and uh, they had him to lead them and thought it was going to be a disastrous season, and so far he's 6-0, and including the playoff game that he won last night, which is why I'm bringing this up now. And the reason that I bring this up now is because he said, football is what I play. It is not who I am. He said, football is a game. It is not my life. He said, whether we win or we lose, my goal is for the Lord to be glorified in my life on the field and off the field. I don't know this kid, but I kind of like him. I like him a lot. He gets the point of the text. We live to the glory of our Lord. And Paul said, that's what I have been blessed with, entrusted with, sharing with you. Now, if you don't know Christ, and you're not living to the glory of the Lord, go to the connect table and find somebody over there who can help answer some questions or make an appointment. Come see me in my study. I'll be glad to sit down and answer all the questions that I possibly can. I'll do my best. What I don't know, I'll find somebody who does know. But if you're not walking with Christ to the glory of God's name, please do so from this moment on. Stand with me as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for the law that restrains us and reveals to us our need for a Savior. And thank you, Lord, for providing that Savior in Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.